It's great to be with you uh, today as Mark and Christy are on vacation, wrapping up their vacation, but it's a joy to be with you today. Uh, Many of you know that I uh, lead the Northwest Baptist Convention of Churches, which our church is a part of. We have about 500 churches. So I thought I'd give you just a couple of things that are going on right now, just in the last few months that our church has been a part of that you might not know about. one of the things we do is we start churches, and our church is huge in that, as you well know. Mark has started two churches himself, is going to start a third, and uh, we support various church starts. We support a Spanish church in Woodland. We support a church in in uh, Vancouver, another one in Portland, Go Church Portland. So we're really huge in that. We have a church plant that we did not sponsor, but as a convention of churches we work with up in Federal Way. And uh, the pastor is Jonathan Lee. Jonathan is a Korean, but he has very good English skills. So he started a multi-ethnic church that can reach all different kinds of people from different backgrounds, but they can all speak English. However, a few months ago, he had 20 to 30 Afghan children show up. I don't know if you know, but we have a lot of Afghan refugees that have come since the United States left Afghanistan. He had all these Afghan children coming, and he didn't know what to do, and so we talked, gave him a couple of thoughts, but one of which is you need to have someone who knows their language, who can help you, you know, with these kids. Within two weeks, he found a woman there in Federal Way who uh, is from Iran, as it turns out, but her language is very similar, and she said, I will come help you. Now, fast forward a few months. I talk, I'm going to be there, by the way. I'm going to put my eyes on this next Sunday. But I asked Jonathan, or he called me this week just to give me an update, and he said, now they've identified a pastor who's an Iranian man whom I know. He started a church in Seattle, an Iranian church, but he speaks Arabic, Iranian. He can speak dialects that these children speak, and he's going to come and help with these kids. 20 to 30 Afghan kids. Now, I say that to say Jonathan never in his dreams thought that when he started that church that he would be reaching these children from Afghanistan who are, you know, burdened and, and, and hurting. And can you imagine all that they've been through? And yet when you engage your community with the gospel, God does things that you never planned or expected would happen. It just happens that way. We have a church down in Cresswell, Oregon that is a Spanish-speaking church. Eduardo Laura is the pastor of that church. And uh, Eduardo started this church. He's doing pretty well. Got about 30 people doing quite well. But there's a guy who owns a sawmill who's a believer, but not, one of, not a member of one of our churches. But he got to know Eduardo. Apparently, most who work in the sawmill, if not all, are, speak Spanish. So he said, would you come on Sunday night and, and do a Bible study for my, my workers who will come on Sunday night? So Eduardo said yes. And so he started with about 20 or 30. He now has every Sunday over 100 <laughs> coming to his Bible study from the sawmill. They all work at the sawmill, mostly men. Last Sunday, he baptized 14 people from that sawmill. Amen. Yes. And you're a part of that work. I say that. By the way, the owner of the sawmill is so taken with Eduardo, he noticed he was driving an old beat up car. So he asked one of my staff, he said, find out if Eduardo could have any car he wanted, what he would want. And so Rob asked him, he said, oh, I'd love to have a Toyota Highlander, you know, uh, that can seat all my kids. And, all. and so he bought him a brand new Toyota Highlander leather interior. I saw it a few weeks ago. It's beautiful uh, because he, he loves what Eduardo is doing for his people. Now, you're a part of that work, and you're a part of so much more. One of the things you may not know that we do is if a pastor or his family, just they're in a world of hurt, and they need 
Christian counseling or they need soul care, uh, then we provide that. You provide that free of charge to any pastor or family member of a pastor who needs that kind of help. And there are many other things we do, but uh, I just say that to say thank you for supporting the work that we do in the Northwest to start churches, to reach people. It makes a huge difference. Now, really what I want to talk to you about this morning is partly what our church provided this week for our young people. Our young people are in camp this week, and we're going to hear from a few of them uh, toward the close of the worship service today. But when you provide a camp for taking kids for an entire week to hear from the Word of God, to focus in on what God is saying to them, that provides those kids an opportunity that is unique in their life to hear from God. And they're together, and they're together for a purpose, and it's not just an hour, it's day after day after day for several days, providing that opportunity. And then, when an opportunity is provided, especially if it's a divine opportunity from the Lord, what you want to do is seize that opportunity. Now, we've all done that. If, you, if you're married, you, you've done that. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you seize the opportunity to say, I do, to someone, that is a huge, life-changing experience. And so, we're not simply talking about religious, quote-unquote, things, although a Christian marriage, which models the relationship of Jesus in his church, now, you need God for that, don't you? By the way, ladies, uh, if your husband offered a pathetic uh, proposal to marry, <laughs> for you to marry him, uh, uh, he, he did far better than I ever did. I'll tell you that. My wife and I have been married now 41 years, and we were dating only, okay, this is almost embarrassing. She probably doesn't like me saying this, very, but we dated for 10 days. And after 10 days, yes, yes, and it's 41 and a half years. After 10 days, I said this. I said, because I was an engineer, I worked in an oil field, I said, Shell Oil Company wants me to work in Houston next summer. And so we'll probably never see each other again because she's from Bakersfield, California. I said, we'll probably never see each other again, you know, unless we get married or something. <laughs> and she said, is that a proposal? I think I said, do you want it to be? <laughs> but now there is a genius to a proposal like that because if she was grossed out at the thought, there's deniability there. You know, I don't, I'm not putting myself out there too far to get rejected too hard. So anyway, but if, you, if you're a parent, uh, there are so, you're, you're, the job and the career you chose, there are so many opportunities that we seize that change everything in our life. Now, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture and invite you to read it with me. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's, it's, a, it's a story in the Bible that you may not know, but it is, a, it is a great story of a man who followed God in great faith. Faith that had God not done what he hoped he would do, the man would have died. There's no doubt about it. He wouldn't have survived. But it's in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now, we're going to read the whole story. We're going to begin with verse 1 and read through verse 23. I'll probably skip one verse, but the story is this. The, the, the Hebrews are fighting the Philistines. They're ancient enemies. And the Philistines are very near them in a place called Michmash, and Saul, the king, and his soldiers are, are they're just sitting around trying to figure out when are we going to attack or when are they going to attack. And so if you notice what it says in verse 1, that same day that the Philistines came near them, that same day Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on. 
let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul, his father, was staying under the pomegranate tree at Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. Then verse 4. There were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozaz and the other Senna. Now these are big rocks and he has to cross a pass. If you, if you get the, the image here, uh, the Philistines are uphill, up a very, very steep hill. In fact, Jonathan has to climb using his hands up this hill to get to where the Philistines are. The word Bozaz means slippery. So one of the rocks evidently was slippery, and the word senna means uh, treading down, treading down. So he has to cross up using his hands, this slippery rock, to get to where the Philistines were. On verse, in verse 5, one stood to the north in front of Michmash, and the other to the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on. Let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now that to me, that's a key verse in the chapter. Uh, let's do this. By the way, the, God told them to fight Philistines, okay? So Jonathan knew there was a general command from the Lord, kill the Philistines. And now Jonathan is going to, at great risk, take on the Philistines with his armor bearer. Not knowing what exactly is going to happen. Because anyone who's been in the military, you, know, you, you just don't know when you go into battle exactly how things are going to turn out. And yet Jonathan did so with the idea... Maybe God will show up. Perhaps the Lord will do something. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That's just an amazing statement of faith. In verse 7, his armor bearer responded, Do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I am completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied. We'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. That's another key truth and statement. Terror spread from God. 
When Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, call the roll and determine who has left us. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Saul told Ahijah, bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at that time. By the way, the Philistines had captured the ark for a time, but the Hebrews got it back, and so now it's, it's with them again, the ark of the covenant. In verse 19, while Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to battle. And there the Philistines were, fighting each other in the confusion, in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Of course, another important statement. Jonathan did all that he could, and the Lord saved Israel that day. Again, this is not one of the best-known passages in the Old Testament, but it is a great story to teach what it means to step out and seize the moment in faith. And one of the truths that we see in this story is that God, and by the way, you see this truth all through Scripture. I've used this same statement in other passages because it is a general truth in Scripture that God never asks His people to do anything they can do without Him. God will never invite you to do something in which you can leave Him out. God won't do that. When God invites us to do something, it always is something that requires him. Now, you see it all through the scriptures. You see it in Abraham. When God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a father when you're 100 years old and your wife is 90. And he did it. You see it in Moses. When he told Moses, I'm going to use you to bring the Hebrew people together to confront Pharaoh, to lead my, let my people go, and march them through the Red Sea, and I'll part the sea. Uh, you see it in Gideon when he you know, pared down his troops to just 300 men in order to win a great battle. You see it in David and Goliath. You see it all throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. Everything that God asks his people to do requires that God step in and do it. And by the way, even when you do good things with the right motives, the supreme of which is to glorify God in what you do, that requires God. One thing we know, if a person doesn't know Jesus, they do nothing intentionally for the glory of God. Now, an unbeliever might do good things, but they don't do it for the right reasons and the right motives, ultimately of which is to glorify God. We want to have great marriages. We want to raise great kids. You want to be a good neighbor. You want to love your enemy and pray for your persecutor and be a, a loving neighbor. But you can't do these things without the Lord. You can't control your baser instincts and desires. You can't live your life so that if you're, if you're shattered by an accident or stricken by an illness or lose everything that you have, that you still live in such a way to honor and glorify the Lord and bring Him glory. All of these things, the most mundane-seeming things, 
require God to step in. Certainly we see that in this story. I mean, if God didn't step in, it was a disaster for Jonathan. It was death, almost certainly, for Jonathan if God didn't step in. Now, Jonathan knew that God told them to fight the Philistines. He wasn't taking a stupid risk. Some risks are foolish. But Jonathan knew that they're engaged in battle with the Philistines because God told them to kill the Philistines. And and he had an idea as to how he might discover whether or not God was going to join him in the battle. If they tell us to come up, we'll go up, and that will be our sign that God is with us and will achieve victory. But does anybody remember how Jonathan died? What's that? Well, Saul fell on his own sword, but you're really, really close because Jonathan died with his dad, King Saul, in battle against the Philistines. So he was victorious in this battle, But the way Jonathan died was in a subsequent, a later battle in which he was killed with his father battling the Philistines. And we don't know why. Why did God let Jonathan live this time and why did he die the next time? We We don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't tell us. What we do know is Jonathan could not be victorious in this battle were God not involved? And when God got involved, the victory was stupendous. And it was one of which God got the glory. What are you involved in that it's impossible if God doesn't step in? I was just visiting with Kurt Schreiber before service today. Kurt was just telling me a ministry he has, because Kurt travels a lot. So he and Jody are, Jody are here today. Good to see you both. I might be here more than you are, I don't know, because I'm not here very much. But anyway, they travel a lot. But Kurt, so, so I'm just t- so Kurt, sometime back, started encouraging people. He, he, he's, a, he, he's a disciple. Now, he's a lineman. He's not a preacher, you know. He's not a trained theologian, but he loves Jesus, and he knows God. Kurt does. And so to help some people who are not Christians or who are baby Christians, he began every day writing a little devotional based on the scriptures. And he just told me he's about ready to finish the New Testament. Well, so he invited, you know, two or three or four people. And now that two or three or four people are 70 to 80 people every day that get a devotion that he writes and he tells them what scriptures he read and suggests they read that day. One of those men was lost, and he's working up in Alaska, and he called Kurt, and they talked for an hour and a half, and he led him to Jesus on the phone. And the guy got baptized. Was it last week or sometime fairly recent? Last week. The guy just got saved. Okay, he's got people all over the country. One person he told me was a person he met on the airplane, you know, now, I've had those experiences, but they never continue. But with Kurt, they continue because God gave Kurt a minute. And by the way, he said, this is not me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic. So reading is, you know, and writing is not his thing. Texting on a phone, I hate it. He hates it more. <laughs> but God gave him this ministry and God's at work through him. I, I, I told Kurt, I said, this is exactly what I'm talking about today. 
A person living a normal life as a lineman working not in the church, a person in whom God is at work doing things that you cannot do if God doesn't join you in the work, if he doesn't yoke himself to you or you don't yoke yourself to Jesus so that Jesus becomes your partner in the ministry. That's exactly what he described. Now, you see, here's the deal. Saul, it appears, confused the blessing of God with wealth and comfort and security. And that's easy for us to do. Sometimes we say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed because I can pay my bills and I'm comfortable and I'm healthy and I'm secure and I'm blessed, you know. That, that, that is not evidence of the blessing of God, not the kind of particular blessing we're talking about. The blessing of God is most seen when God calls you to do something that you cannot do without him. It's exactly what Jonathan was doing. Saul was sitting in the safety and the comfort under the, under the pomegranate tree. He wasn't the one most blessed that day. I'm not most blessed when I'm sitting in my easy chair watching the end of the British Open like I did this morning. <laughs> I don't even play golf anymore, but, you know, but that's not when God's blessing is evidence in my life when I'm enjoying my comfortable chair and watching a great, you know, match. <laughs> No, the blessing of God is when you're doing something God has told you to do that requires his involvement in your life. It's exactly what we see in this text. Now, by the way, most of that does not happen in this room. Now, what we do in this room is really, really important. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. The Bible requires and that we worship together and study the word together and iron sharpens iron and all of that and pray with each other. And so this is vital, but this is like what? An hour or two? Maybe today we'll go three. No. (laughs) Most of what you do that requires the blessing and involvement of God is what you're doing in your household, raising your kids or your grandkids or what you're doing on the job, what, what Kurt's doing in discipling people via text messages. I asked him, I said, do you do this five days a week? No, seven days a week. (laughs) Not even a day off. So what we see is, is that God invites us to do things that require his involvement. But there's something else in this text that's really, really important to see. And that is, when you follow Jesus, you don't know where the road's going to take you. Where is the journey going to lead? You don't know. But you do know why you're on the journey. You know, often we want a map. When people used to use maps, you would chart out your course, you know, where you're going. I've got one at home, an atlas, in which I've traced every road trip we've ever taken for 40 years. You know, it's all written out on the map. But I don't use a map anymore. I use a GPS. God gives us a compass. He doesn't give us a map. And even when you use a GPS, the only thing you need to know is the next turn and maybe the estimated time of arrival. You don't need to see the end journey. It's sort of like when you're driving at night. How far can you see at night as far as the headlights will show? But that's all you need. You just need to know the next step. Just get down the road. And you need to know why you're on the road. Why am I going to the destination of my choice? We don't know how or where this life is going to end. 
But I hope you do know why it's important that you obey God. Why is it important that you believe the Bible? Why am I a Christian? Why is Jesus worthy of my suffering? These questions help us know why we're on the road. Now, the last time I spoke here was back in February, and I talked about the importance of discipling your children. And I focused on some of those why questions that you need to help your children answer, why are we Christians and not Buddhist or nothings? Why, if I lose my job or lose my friend and suffer for Jesus, why am I doing this? Is Jesus worthy of my suffering? Because your kids will suffer. Some of you would testify, I've suffered. I've lost jobs. I've lost opportunities because of my obedience to Jesus. That's just a fact of life, and it's a growing fact of life in this country. So you have to help your kids and new believers, and that's one thing that Kurt's doing, is help these people know why. Why do, you, do I believe in Jesus? Why should I get into his word? By the way, I talked to someone not long ago, within the last month or two at most, who's in ministry, been in ministry not quite as old as me, but in their 50s, and a, a seminary graduate with a master's degree, and they told me they had just for the first time read the entire Bible. And I'm thinking, wow. How, how, how do you get direction from God if you don't know what's in the Bible? How do you do that? The Bible's not just for the person who's a seminary grad, by the way. As Kurt testified, it's for him, it's for you, it's for your kids. One thing, our boys are here today. Our, boy, our youngest and his wife live in St. Louis. They're here for a week. So, One thing we did with them, we memorized Scripture. We read through the Bible. We studied missions. We, we did all kinds of things as they were growing up. We prayed with them and for their teachers before we sent them off to school. And we discussed things at night. And that was part of the disciple-making thing. We, because it wasn't so important. I mean, it was important to us that the kids make their own living. <laughs> You know, we wanted them to be able to get jobs. But what was most important to us is we wanted them to know Jesus and know why Jesus is worthy of following. And we wanted them to have a strength of character and faith that would take them through the hard times. See, when you suffer injustice or difficulty without growing bitter, that requires God. God has to join you in that. So you know why you're on the journey. Jonathan knew why he was on the journey. He didn't know for certain where the road would take him and how the outcome would be, but he knew why he was on the journey. And I'll say one other thing about that, and that is um, God did not show up and bless Jonathan and provide the means of the victory until Jonathan stepped out. It's the person who steps out. It's the person who strives that's going to experience the activity of God in their life. If not, I'm not going to drive my pickup. I'm not going to put gas in it. I don't want to waste my blessing of gas in my pickup that I'm going to let sit in the garage. No, I'm going to fuel the vehicle that's doing the work, that's carrying the load. 
in a similar sense, the power of God is most evident in the person who's doing the work. Why? Because they're the ones who need the blessing of God. They're the ones who need the resources and the sustenance of God. Jonathan needed God. Saul did not need God to the extent Jonathan did because Saul was sitting under the pomegranate tree. (laughs) One other thing about that. God showed up when Jonathan obeyed and stepped out, and then the text says, then God really went to work. The ground shook. Whether it was an earthquake or not, we don't know. But what we do know is the Bible says that God uh, sent a panic throughout the Philistine camp. So Jonathan did what he did, but then God stepped in and sent the panic so that the Philistines began to fight each other. And did you notice those who were fearful of the fight and even those who had gone over to join the Philistines once they saw the people of God had the power of God at work within them, they switched back over and joined the Hebrews in the fight. I thought that was sort of interesting. Did you notice that? There were Hebrews who feared the Philistines might be more powerful and rather than get killed... They joined the Philistines. But what the Bible says is, once they saw the Hebrews were going to achieve the victory, they switched sides again and fought against the Philistines. That's the way it is, isn't it? Some people, when you stand up and step out and they see God at work in your life, it will embolden them to switch teams and come join you in the work of God. Now, there were others, it says, that were hiding. Other Hebrew men who were hiding, they were fearful. They didn't want to get in the fight. They didn't want to get killed. But when they saw God was bringing victory, they came out of their holes. They came out of hiding, and they joined in the fight. When you join God in His work, you encourage others to do the same. It's exactly what we see. By the way, that's one reason we need the church. We need to hear the testimonies of each other. We need to know what God's doing in the lives of others. So that maybe it will encourage us that maybe God can do it in me too. If he can do it in you. I think I'll conclude with one story. I don't believe I've told this story here, but it's probably the greatest ministry experience I've ever had. Not really personally. It wasn't about me. It's about the church I last pastored. I pastored for 20 years before doing the work I do now. And the last church I pastored, I was there 11 years. And in the 10th year, we learned of some, this is in McAllister, Oklahoma, by the way. I grew up in Montana. My mom's from Oregon. I'm from the Northwest. But was called to a church in Oklahoma. So I was in McAllister, Oklahoma. And some of you will remember the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay, in 1995. And I was there, not in the bombing, but in Oklahoma. And then one of the conspirators in the bombing was a man named Terry Nichols. And Terry Nichols' trial was right beside our church building in McAllister. His state trial. Now, Nichols had already been convicted in a federal trial, but they gave him life without parole. Oklahoma wanted him dead. (laughs) And so we had a state trial. 
in which the death penalty was on the table. They moved it out of Oklahoma City because of the jury pool, moved it, I mean, literally right beside our church. We're on the same block as the courthouse. I could lob underhand a stone and hit the judge's window. And so the day we found out about this trial coming to our town, we were told the place is going to be covered up with media. It's going to be, you know, just unbelievable for like six months. And I was in a staff meeting with our staff, and we were talking about what are we going to do, you know? How are we going to provide parking and all all of this stuff? And then one of my staff said, you know, there's got to be an opportunity in this. And we began to talk about the opportunity. Well, I see Gary Floyd back there. Gary and I worked together because my staff member called Gary's counterpart in Oklahoma. Gary leads disaster relief uh, for the Northwest, uh, chaplaincy and all of that. So he called Paul Bettis in Oklahoma City and said, Paul, we're talking about this trial that's going to be right. We wonder, is there any opportunity here? And Paul said, I can't tell you. Let me check and call you back. So he called him back within 30 minutes, and here's what he said. He said, we need someone who will provide a breakfast every day, kind of a breakfast snack, for all of the family members of the victims. Now, there were 169 died in that bombing. Three pregnant women died. 18 children in the daycare center died. And they said, we need someone to provide a lunch every day for all of them that come a hot lunch, a good lunch. And we need a breakout place where they can come and rest when they just need to get away from the courthouse. And we need someone who will provide listeners who can just listen to them and pray with them when things get bad. And we expect the trial to go six months. And you need to do this every single day, whomever it is, for every day of the trial for six months, And you can't tell your church, we need you to commit to this, and you can't tell the church. And (laughs) we expect 100 to 150 people every day. So they asked me, will you commit, and your staff, your church, to ministering to 100 to 150 people a day for up to six months, providing them two meals a day and all the other stuff? And you can't even tell your deacons. Now, what did we do? We said yes. We had no idea what it would cost. Oh, because they said you can't charge them for these meals. <laughs> you know, you got to pay for it. You got to find a way to pay for it. But as I said, I'd been there 10 years. I knew that church. We had gone through things. We had seen God do things. Our faith had been built. See, faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. Jonathan, this wasn't the first rodeo for Jonathan. Jonathan had been in battles before. Jonathan had seen God at work before. Just like David when he fought Goliath. David had already fought the lion and the bear. The God who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from the hand of this wicked Philistine. So we knew that our church had come through time and time and time again. In fact, we had the sense they will be so excited One month out from the trial, this was six months out, one month out from the trial, we said, we've got to inform some people because we need some of our lay people to help us, you know, providing the meals and doing all this stuff. And so they said, give us the names of 20 people. We said, we need 20. 
and we'll see if they're on the jury pool or not. Those that aren't in the jury pool, we'll let you talk to them, but they got to be sworn to secrecy. None of the 20 were in the jury pool. We met. I remember someone in the meeting saying, I'll bet Walmart would help us. We had a great relationship in that town, a town of 25,000 with all the businesses and the political leaders and everybody. And he said, I'll bet, I'll bet we could get Walmart to do a whole bunch. And one of the men in the room said, how much glory would Walmart want if we asked them to do this for us? I think God deserves all the glory. That settled it. <laughs> We're not talking to Walmart. One week out, on a Sunday morning like this, I announced to the church what we had committed them to. And we said, today, we need to know the level of your involvement. And we had all kinds of responsibilities lined out. And I tell you, it will never be repeated, I don't think, in my life, what happened that day. Not one word of criticism. People were so excited that they were going to get to minister to these families. I remember one of the family members who came was a Muslim guy, and we learned that he needed different food. He couldn't eat what we were providing. So we had one of the ladies said, you tell me what you can eat, and I'll make sure you have that every single day. At the end of the trial, he said, I'm not a Christian, but if I ever become a Christian... It'll, it'll be because of what you've done. There's so many stories I could tell if I had time of individual lives that came. By the way, I'll tell you one other, just kind of a cool one. So my wife and I and our boys, we were going to Washington, D.C. on vacation, kind of in the middle of the trial. And one of the guys said, uh, are you, are you going to go to the White House? Well, this is in 2004. So it was after 9-11. It was hard to get a tour to the White House. And I said, well, we're trying to get the tour. It's an East Wing tour, if you've ever been there. That's where the public's allowed to go. But we haven't gotten it yet. This is one week out. He said, listen, I'm retired Secret Service. He said, I can get you a private Secret Service tour of the West Wing of the White House, the Rose Garden, the Oval Office, the whole shebang. He said, you got to do it in the evening when the president's not in the office. But yeah, I can get you that. And he did. <laughs> so I got pictures of my wife in the Rose Garden and in the in the press room and all these various places. That was one of the little serendipities that came from that. The trial lasted three and a half months. Didn't last six months. We, we set aside at the beginning $2,500. We thought, we don't know how far this is going to get us down the road, but we'll see. And see, what, okay, at the end of three and a half months, we had $1,800 remaining of that twenty-five. We had a little country, we were a big church. We had a little country church say, uh, we can't do this and we know we can't do it, but we're so glad you are. Here's $500. And they sent us $500. And people from all over just said they were so grateful for the ministry that the church was providing. They wanted to help pay for it. And so <laughs> we stepped out, God stepped in. And story after story. I say that to say, that doesn't happen the day you start a church. Now, we're five years into this, six years almost, I think. We've seen God do things in this church. You've seen God do things in your life. 
Our church could step out and accomplish things today we never could have imagined five years ago. Why, we're fixing to do it because we're sending our founding pastor out in a few months to start another church. By the way, Mark and Christy are an example of the kind of faith I'm talking about. They got a good thing going here. Uh, He had a good thing going before he came here. He was in a church running about 500. Did you know that? Some of you didn't. He left a church running about 500 for a dream when he came here. And now is doing the same down in Oregon of all places. (laughs) So we've had it modeled for us in various ways. And five years in now to collectively We can accomplish and do things and see God at work in ways we never could have imagined five years ago. But it's not just true for us as a church. I pray and hope it's true for you as a follower of Jesus. Uh, Kurt, were you doing this ministry five years ago? Could you have imagined doing this ministry five years ago with these 70 or 80 people? No, God's brought you along as as he's obeyed God. He's obeyed God. He's done what he can do. And God has grown his ministry to things he never dreamed possible. And there's a lot of us in this room, I think, would have a a similar testimony. But the thing is, others of us could as well. Obey the Lord. Step out. Let God step in. And he'll do things you never dreamed possible. Never dreamed possible. Now, it could well be, and it certainly is, that there are people in this room that have never stood up for Jesus. You've never stood up for Jesus. You've never been baptized publicly standing before the church, standing before the world, saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him and forsake all others. If you've not made that commitment, there'll be people at the back of the room. I'll be here. Others that you might want to talk to and help you to come to faith in Christ. That's where it all begins. What the Bible says is, is that Jesus died on the cross so that his blood could wash away our sin. Not only provide forgiveness, which he does, but provide a cleansing from sin so that when God looks at you, he sees you as a clean person, not a sinful person. And then Jesus was buried, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he was seen by 500 people at once. And the people who wrote our New Testament testifying to the resurrected Savior. And 2,000 years of church history testifying to the resurrected Savior. Romans 10, 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, I would implore you and invite you today link, yoke your life to Jesus. Link your life to his. Surrender to him as your Lord and Savior and begin this marvelous journey of faith with Christ. We're going to baptize, by the way, in about a month. I think it's August 13th. You could be a part of that number that's baptized on August 13th. Baptism and barbecue, pretty good combination (laughs) in the park. So settle that in your heart. Others of you may have other choices and decisions that you need to make. Maybe God's presented you an opportunity that you've not taken hold of. You've not seized it at this point. You need to seize it. By the way, when you do, then it 
releases opportunities that you never thought possible. Uh, oh, I'm so tempted to tell some more stories. I'll, I'll just tell, just say this. I was starting my senior year in college, petroleum engineering, and my pastor said, Randy, would you and Paula teach the high school Sunday school class? And we said, yes. And it was the experience of teaching the Bible to that class that God used to say, I want you, I want you preaching. <laughs> and so I graduated with the degree and then headed to seminary because I said yes to that little opportunity that may not have seemed that significant, teaching a Bible class, but saying yes to that, God used that to change my life. And he'll change your life in so many ways when you say yes to him. I want to pray for us. And then, uh, and then we're going to hear some testimonies of these young people. This is the height of the service, to hear what God did this week uh, with the group that James took down to camp. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your work in our life. Thank you for the opportunities you provide us. Give us the courage to seize them, to act upon them, and then to watch you at work through each of us individually, through our church collectively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.